0: You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We're continuing our series on China today, a country with over a billion people where growth and stability are keys to their national security. Between 1979 and 2015, China had something known as a one-child policy, which resulted in a prevalence of male children due to cultural preferences. But this overabundance of men created new challenges for the PRC, such as an increase in the crime rate and other issues that the CCP might have failed to anticipate. Then in 2015, the PRC changed that policy to allow for two children without serious consequences. What China may not have expected was that birth rates would begin to fall anyway, posing a direct threat to the PRC's ruling Communist Party. My guest tonight is Ashton Verdery, the Harry and Alyssa Cicci Early Career Professor of Sociology, Demography, and Social Data Analytics at Penn State. And he's the co-author of a piece you may have seen in Foreign Affairs entitled China's Shrinking Families. Please take a look and we will hyperlink that. Ashton, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: Let's give some background to our listeners. So first of all, anything coming out of China in terms of data... I guess, to national security lawyers as suspects. So how did you go about collection in this case?
1: Right. So our study is a modeling study and we use a variety of different data sources from PRC sources, but also UN sources, US Census Bureau kind of estimates and other kind of European research organizations that try and make estimates of various aspects of Chinese demography. And then we take that data and plug it in to our model, which produces kind of demographic estimates and changes that suggest that the future population of China and how that change might look.
0: Let's go back, though, to 1979, because the changes that we're seeing, I guess some of them find their origins in culture, some of them find their origins in 1979. But let's talk about what this one child policy really was. Was this just one law in the books that says you can only have one kid or was it something else entirely?
1: No, it kind of sprang from china's kind of broad family planning initiatives that they began actually in 1972 with what they called the later longer fewer campaign which was encouraging women through a variety of educational means and things like that to have fewer children to start bearing children later to have longer intervals between each birth and ultimately to have fewer kids in the 70s, they determined that that wasn't working quickly enough to stem China's quickly rising population. And there was concern that this could kind of immiserate the country and lead to mass poverty or at least keep them trapped in a low-income kind of circumstance. So they embarked on what kind of known as the one-child policy, where they at first only applied to the Han majority, but they limited the numbers of births that people could have. It was sort of selectively enforced for a few years. And then sort of by the mid-80s, it was pretty broadly enforced and extended to ethnic minority groups to rural areas and the coerciveness was very strong there were sterilizations abortions you know forced abortions and other kinds of very coercive measures undertaken In the 90s, they began relaxing it in certain circumstances, rural areas, it was relaxed if your first child was a girl. There were relaxations in other parts of the country for ethnic minority groups or for two individuals who both were only children themselves who married, or if your first child passed away, there were exemptions kind of created at that point or in case of disability. So it kind of ultimately settled through the 2000s into like what's considered like an effective one and a half child policy. If you look at the numbers of people that were exposed to the different kind of rules the estimates are that the legal kind of terrain was basically enforcing a countrywide one and a half child policy. And that's what was sort of rescinded in 2015, where they permitted couples who were subject to those one child limits still, they permitted them to have second children if they wanted. And then in 2019, there was a revision to that and they permitted third children in those circumstances.
0: What really changed when the policy was altered? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but as we look at China right now, it's an aging and diminishing population. I suppose the same could be said of the United States. But can you give us a sense of what the demographics were, how they changed, what the social impact was of this lifting of the policy?
1: Yeah. So there's a few kind of aspects to it. One, there's what was lifted. These restrictions on couples that had a child who wanted to have a second child, these were removed, and those couples were able to have them. And so one way to kind of look at the impact of that is how many couples that had a child went on to have that second child now. Before the policy was lifted, it was about, I think, 40% of couples were going on to have a second child, which might seem high, but it's because the rural areas and ethnic minority groups that weren't subject to the policy, all those exempt groups were having children too. So about 40% of people who had one child went on to have a second. After the policy was lifted, it went up to about 0.8 or 0.9, 80 to 90% of people were were having that second child in the first year, but it's declined precipitously since then, down all the way to about six now. So only about 60% of the couples that have a first child go on to have a second child. And in tandem with that, there has been a huge decline in the numbers of people who go on to have a first child. So people who have zero children, who then have a first child. Before the policy was implemented, before the restrictions were lifted, it was about 100% of couples would have that first child. And sort of after that, it's declined pretty strongly to about 70% now. And in total, kind of the expectation was that lifting the policy would sort of Boost China's fertility rates. They were about, I think, 1.6 when the policy was lifted. Sort of, as some estimates had it lower at 1.4, but most estimates now have it down around one or, or 1.1 children per woman expected over the course of their lives under kind of current regimes. And so this has kind of led to a mass decline in births in China, where this is the first year that the number of births was fewer than the number of deaths. This was not expected to happen. You know, back in 2015, it wasn't expected to happen until 2030, and even a year or two ago, it was not really expected happen until 2024. So that population decline is progressing much more quickly than anticipated, which could be a a result of kind of numbers not being entirely accurate prior to the kind of current releases. But it's also seems to be a sign that there is a great delay of family formation in China and possibly a, a kind of turn away from marriage right now. For instance, The average expectation for numbers of kids in China right now, I think, is about 1.8. If you ask women how many children they want, that's sort of the number that they report, which is pretty low, lower than the rate that would be needed to replace China's population. And generally, populations undershoot that desired number by a fair bit. So they're going to decline quite rapidly in the foreseeable future unless fertility rates really spike.
0: All right. Well, conventional thinking, at least historically, has been that GDP and wealth of a country is sort of associated with postponed trial bearing of female literacy and those two indices. I guess the question becomes, what has happened to China? And a more specific question, what happens when you have this disproportionate number of males? Because we do, correct me if I'm wrong, we do have a disproportionate number of males there. I guess the thinking, as I mentioned, was, you know, you you don't have kids until you're much older. Women get more education. This is supposed to cause wealth. To you, as a data scientist, what does this indicate?
1: So I think there's two questions that you asked there. One is this kind of growth in wealth and generally population reductions in fertility. When you move from kind of, say, four children per woman down to two, that generally leads to increases in wealth, or at least coincides with it because of the education, greater labor force participation of women. The challenge can become when fertility is very low and populations tip into kind of the shrinking situation or rapidly graying situations before they become wealthy, sort of this kind of middle income trap on a demographic scale, where, you know, for instance, in China, it still is not a very wealthy country. It's kind of a middle-income country. And What's going on right now is they're seeing great surges in the numbers of senior individuals, which has big implications for the care that they need, both like healthcare and, and kind of family members providing care for them. And they don't have the kind of nursing home infrastructure that we have here. There's also questions about pensions, like retirement and things like that. A large bulk of Chinese retirement is kind of supported by people's children. And that places a lot of burdens and kind of drags on economic growth because those children are engaged with the labor force, but their labor force. Participation might be lower than it would otherwise be because they're caring for aging parents and things like that. So they're sort of in a a situation that's challenging in those regards and rapidly entering that territory right now, similar to what Japan is. China's age structure right now looks similar to Japan's in the 90s. And in 20 or so years, it'll look similar to Japan's today. But Japan is a wealthy country with a kind of diverse pension system, great availability of care, and from a professional care standpoint, whereas China doesn't have that yet. And the prospects of building that kind of welfare state. Seems limited at this juncture. The second question you asked was about this kind of excess number of men through the mid 80s to the 90s, and even into the 2000s, there was a kind of excess birth rate for men. So basically, the, the proportion of babies that were born that were male was much higher than is typical. Basically, for every in most societies, for every um, 100 female births, there's about 105 male births. But in China, it spiked to about 115 to 120 are some estimates over that period, which led to basically children born from the mid 80s to the 2010ish period, there was a much larger number of men. Many of of those kids are now entering the kind of marital ages, coupling with the fact that the kind of size of each successive birth cohort was shrinking and that men marry women younger than themselves typically. So usually 27-year-old men marry 25-year-old women is, is a kind of cultural norm. And in that circumstance with, you know, the, there are more 27-year-old men than there are 25-year-old women, plus there are just more men than women in those age groups to begin with, kind of has a double kind of burden on this. So the estimates from that are that, Basically, from now to about 2040, the expectation is that 15 or so percent of Chinese men will kind of enter age 40, age 50 without having married. And in a culture where almost all childbearing is within marriage, this leads to a large number of kind of older men that won't have children, won't have spouses. And there are questions about what that might imply for the care that they might receive, their engagement with society, um, their labor force participation. You mentioned crime earlier as well, and lots of concerns about that.
0: Wow. Okay. And I don't know if your data pulled this, but it, there's also emigration, emigration with a knee. Um, there are large numbers of people who want to leave China, perhaps for more freedom or other economic opportunities, given the fact that apparently you can't move freely around China. You have an internal sort of passport and residence restriction system. Did your data pull any of that
1: Right, so we modeled some exit from the country. We did not model internal dynamics, but these are a big challenge in China. There's large numbers of rural individuals who have moved to the cities and are not registered in the cities, and so they can't access schools for their children in the cities. And they leave their children with kind of aging parents in the rural areas and things like that, that lead to a number of challenges. In addition, those workers are often exploited. Their kind of wealth building and other things are is, are much slower than would otherwise be in a kind of more open system with open movement. Um, which leads to a lot of challenges.
0: I guess the question that I have is you're looking at a, like in our system, obviously people have social security, you know, we've tried to set up a safety net, Medicare, Medicaid for persons in need. Does China have anything in place to support these aging individuals and where will it draw any tax dollars in order to provide care for them? If that's necessary to things like national stability and quelling protests, because, recently and during COVID, you know, there were protests by elderly people in particular. And I wonder what you thought about those and how they fit into what you've seen through your data.
1: Right. So in general, they have a very patchwork kind of supplemental insurance system or pension systems. Very low percentage of the population is covered by pensions. And the amount that is kind of remitted from those is pretty low. This is much lower in rural areas than in urban areas. But I believe the estimates are that only 20% of Chinese older individuals are covered by a full pension system. So there are big questions about how they will be supported. And much of the kind of wealth in China is held in sort of real estate holdings with demographic downturns and changes in the kind of real estate market in China overall. There are questions about, is that going to be a sustainable source of kind of wealth for people in their older years? There are big concerns about the population's kind of ability to support this. In terms of where tax dollars would come from to create a pension system, you know, that's beyond my expertise, but it seems like the sources are relatively thin because the building of these systems is very expensive. China is still trying to industrialize and and grow its wealth. Putting those taxes in place might limit that kind of dynamism and, and growth that has been seen over the years. The term that's often used for this is that China will grow old before it gets rich. And that could be the case with this kind of rapid demographic change that's uh, unfolding.
0: OK, and, and she has certainly tightened things down since this most recent re-election. So to the extent that it's deemed a happy place to live, that may be increasingly less the case and force more immigration. I, I mean, I would speculate. I guess one of the things I noticed in your article was that it talked about the role of the family in China. Now, I I, I want to be clear because I know a lot of our listeners are of Chinese heritage, Chinese Americans. I recognize that China is a massive and diverse place. So we're speaking very broadly here, but what role in general does the family play across these various cultures in China? Let's talk about that first before we move on to any other question.
1: Right. So culturally, and of course, you're, you're totally right. There's a huge heterogeneity in China between different ethnic groups. And, you know, even within uh, ethnic groups, there's, there's substantial heterogeneity in these cultural norms. But traditional Chinese culture emphasizes the family. It's a core tenet of Confucian kind of thinking kind of filial piety and questions about care for the family. For instance, they passed a law, I think, in 2015 for the rights and protections of the elderly, which require children to support their parents. And parents can even sue their children for something like alimony if they are not providing support for them. So there's kind of legalistic norms about caregiving and financial and uh, interpersonal care that are kind of different than in the United States. Like I couldn't imagine a law like that in the United States that a parent could sue a child for not paying for their elder care or things like that. So there, there are big kind of legal norms. And then there's sort of other kind of cultural aspects to this, like much of Chinese business has thought to operate or at least be lubricated or, or operate more efficiently because of networks of kind of interpersonal connections, Guangxi networks, which you know are both friend networks, but also encompass extended family ties. Um, if you look at kind of the largest Chinese companies, many of them have extended family ties between them if you look at the boards of directors and things like that. So there's a broad kind of cultural importance of family in China that is currently changing, I think, because of the rapid change in the numbers of family members that people have in these kind of extended kin networks.
0: And have you observed any changes in laws or practices through your data that might suggest that they're actually working to do something about this, maybe anticipating that it's going to be a crisis? Or are they too busy right now and sort of cracking down and consolidating power?
1: I think that they there is evidence that they are trying that they're really taking this quite seriously, in particular, the lifting of the one child policy was an effort. And then quickly right thereafter, they lifted the the two child policy and they've increasingly begun to emphasize education campaigns that would guide people to kind of pro family, pro social activities and, and having more children and things like that. So there is a lot of effort in terms of kind of cultural change that is being top down efforts for cultural change that are being implemented. I think that what we'll see in the next decade, next couple of years, will be increasing. The, the Chinese state has great involvement in the economy, in housing, in uh, universities and things like that. And I would not be surprised if they try and pull some of those levers to increase family size among people and increase the birth rate. That could be by building more apartments that are for larger families. That could be you know, greater allotment for kind of university slots and things like that.
0: Maybe that explains the sudden restructuring of Evergrande. <laughs> after, it, after it collapse, I did read in the FT that they have um, over $20 billion in debt offshore that suddenly the government's gotten involved in restructuring. But the other thing I think that might be of concern to some of our female listeners in particular is this could also be pushed forward through some sort of subjugation of women. Have Do you see any evidence that that may be used as a tool of the CCP?
1: Not necessarily, although there is an increasing emphasis that I have seen in kind of masculinity kind of things and concerns about you know effeminate men and things like that. If you follow that logic, would probably lead in a kind of subjugation of women direction. But I don't know explicitly if there are efforts that might restrict women's rights or things like that.
0: Okay, and I think we're aware of uh, some claims in China that sort of pro-feminist social media posts they're accusing of being foreign influenced which seems unlikely to be true and may just be sort of the natural development of society. Let's talk for a minute. When as when a family breaks down in society, you know, something comes to replace that and it's not always a good thing. Can you talk a little bit about what could fill the vacuum? Because I think a lot of people look around the United States, they look at Rust Belt areas where people have seemed to develop not always healthy internet connections as opposed to family ties, will the state become sort of more important in a vacuum and have greater control over sort of the minds and actions of the Chinese people as the family diminishes? I mean, will they necessarily sort of rise instead?
1: you're exactly right that when, you know, family kind of phrase, there are other things that that come to replace it. The question from, from the Chinese perspective, I think would be how much the state relies on the family to achieve things right now. So, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword in, in this regard where, you know, having fewer or, or no family members decreases the state's kind of capacity to put pressure on you and might lead to kind of more instability. There's a kind of famous clip, Mike, co-author referenced in a recent op-ed where the Chinese police were coming to put, bring someone to COVID quarantine. And they said, if you don't comply with us, then we'll cause problems for multiple generations of your family. And the person said, you know, I'm the last generation of my family. And so there was sort of this idea that there's greater kind of ability to rebel when you know they can't put pressure on loved ones and relatives. So there's there are questions about whether it might actually diminish the role of the state. At the same time, There will necessarily be increased role of the state in terms of care and pension systems and and managing those kinds of things. So I'm not sure which direction it will go, but I think it creates greater uncertainty and unpredictability and sort of uh, how the society might react, protests and things like that. Those are also more difficult to coordinate without kind of close family ties. So it's, it's just a bit more unpredictable, I think is how I would characterize it.
0: All right. Well, that has been very interesting. What if you had I know you're not in the business of predicting very much, but taking a look at China right now and comparing its sort of demographic changes to that of the West, do you see any massive difference or anything that is appreciably different than the, say, declining birth rate in the United States and in Western Europe?
1: Yes, I would separate the U.S. and Western Europe, or at least parts of Western Europe. The U.S. is in a generally better situation demographically. You know, our birth rate is substantially higher than China's. We're about 1.6. China's about 1.1 1. 1 or 1%. 1. And we have a large number of immigrants. China has has very small levels of immigration to it and probably cultural resistance to having more immigration, at least at a a federal level. I think that we are able to kind of maintain our kind of population growth through a variety of means, um, both higher birth rates, but also levels of immigration that put us in a much less precarious situation than China is. Western Europe does have several countries with extraordinarily low birth rates. But again, many of those have moderate levels of immigration not as high as the United States but you know reasonably high and i think that that supports them
0: all right well i think this has been very interesting to hear and i really appreciate you giving us some time tonight cuz i know you are a very busy guy with a family yourself Yes, Um, something like 1.8 children.
1: No, yeah, two. We're we're just above that (laughs) (laughs) 1.8. Okay.
0: Well, um, thank you for supporting all of us in our later years. Thank you for your data. And we look forward to looking at some of the other things that you're working on right now, which I think will be of great interest to our listeners going forward, including some of the work that you're doing on sort of internet usage and interaction with individuals. So our guest tonight has been Ashton Verdery, Professor of Sociology and Demography and Social Data Analytics at Penn State. He's also the co-author of China's Shrinking Families, which you can find in foreign affairs. Thank you so much for coming in.
1: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
0: All right. And thank you for listening to NSLT. Be sure to share this episode with a friend or a colleague and discuss some of the facts and issues that we've presented and do that. Make that discussion thoughtful. If you have feedback for us, reach out to us on Twitter at ABA or you can email us at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Poteed, always here in my individual capacity. Our editor and my co-producer is Francis Berkham. Our program manager is Rebecca Salito and my co-producer is Holly McMahon, as well as the incredible members of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, without whom this podcast would not be possible. See you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.